0: All right, this morning we are in Revelation chapter 5. It's, uh, uh, we're taking a little one-week break out of James uh, because I didn't have time to actually work on the next sermon in James. And uh, I was preparing uh, for a class in Phoenix that Jory and I went to, and we both got to work on this passage. So um, I preached this in 2009. Was anybody here in 2009? Yeah, some of you were. You might have heard this before. I changed it up some uh, after the class because I started to see more things. And I'm sure when I preach the Revelation, I will be changing it some more because I'm, I'm learning more of how to understand it. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read the passage? Revelation chapter 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Jesus' desire for the church, um, we see in John chapter 17, that they may be one, even as we are one. And when we're in worshiping in spirit and in truth, when we're focused on Jesus, we experience that. Too often we get bogged down with uh, what's happening in our day or our attitudes that we carry with us, personalities and preferences and, and and even knowing how do we do this worship thing? You want to do it this way. Everyone should come in quiet. No, they should talk. Uh, we should only use KJV. No, we can use... <laughs> you know, we have a million different opinions of how we should do things. And yet we go back to Jesus' heart, John 17, that they may be one, even as we are one. And when we focus just on Jesus, we find that oneness. When our our whole attention is just devoted to him, everything else fades away. And I trust you're here this morning to see Jesus in his word. And the natural outcome of true worship edifies, it builds up our most holy faith when we are focused on Jesus. When he's our focus, we participate in his love for each other. He's what makes us one and brings us all in. All our diversity turns into unity. And when together our focus is on him alone, we experience that oneness. Can you recall some of the best times of worship? Uh, You know, think back and think about that time. I remember that Sunday, I was blown away. It was probably because you saw Jesus. It was when the Lord was made clear to us, when we sensed his love for us in in a deeper way, when we saw him more clearly in a greater way than we'd understood before and saw his personal desire for each of us. Like the prophets Isaiah or Ezekiel, you were awed by the wonder of God. Words were inadequate inadequate to describe the impression on your heart and the adoration that you felt for him. Man can, with music, we can orchestrate emotional highs. Even, even there are speaking methods to move people's emotions. But a greater revelation of Jesus comes when hearts are hungering for him and the power of the Spirit reveals him through the word. Worship happens when we see him more clearly. And that's greater than our personal daily needs, our desires, our preferences, our tastes. Every other preference must be set aside for this all-consuming passion to know Jesus. In John 4, chapter 4, 19 to 26, the woman at the well tried to change the subject on Jesus. He, He was talking to her about her sin, and she wanted to avoid that. Anyone would want to avoid that in Jesus' presence. And she brought up their religious differences, And the beauty in that account is that Jesus prompted her to see him, his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy. All the religious differences became insignificant when she saw Jesus. It's not that those doctrines are unimportant. Doctrine is essential. It keeps us from following a false messiah. But when we see Jesus, we get a hunger for the Word, and then doctrine falls in line and eventually gets straightened out. The peripheral issues take second place to the glory and the wonder of Jesus. As Watchman Nee wrote, Jesus is the sum of all spiritual things. Spirituality that doesn't focus on Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, is just deception. The letters to the churches in in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation started with this revelation of Jesus. Each of the letters began by telling something about Jesus. And just getting a glimpse of those descriptions of him should have straightened out those churches. But Jesus went on to explain what that revelation meant in practical terms, whether it was a rebuke or a commendation or sometimes both. Revelation above all else, the book of Revelation above all else reveals Jesus. The very first words in the book say the revelation of Jesus Christ. apocalypsis, the unveiling, the, the, uh, the seeing of, seeing and comprehending of Jesus. That's what the book is all about. In this chapter, we're going to see him as many of us have never seen him before. The churches in that those letters were written to in southern Turkey were undergoing a time of uncertainty. And the Roman Empire, probably there's debates about which emperor, but I think it's probably Diocletian. There's more evidence leaning that way. And he had... Uh, he had made edicts that made it possible for the governors of those different areas to, to persecute, even execute Christians if they would not say that he was Lord. He had a particular bent for uh, titles of God being applied to himself. Now, many areas didn't do anything about it. The threat of annihilation hung over their heads, though, and so there was always this heaviness in the churches. Some of them experienced it, some did not. But we can see in the letters that there was a greater danger that they were experiencing, experiencing at the time. It was a danger we also face. It was a danger of affluence and false teaching like today, compromise with the culture through false teaching or simply giving in to the temptations of the world were threatening to extinguish the light of the churches in those cities. They needed a vision for what was to come. They needed to see where they were headed to realize the finality of the world's systems and the eternality of the kingdom of God. Verse 1 again And verse two, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, in chapter four, um, really chapter four and five go together. John is called up in the beginning first verse of chapter four. He's called up into the heavenly realm. Probably spiritually, I don't think his body went there, but we don't really know. It says he's caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day and he's in the throne room of heaven and he's watching these things come to pass. And so chapter four kind of describes the throne room. And there we are introduced to the four living creatures who declare God's praises as they fly around the throne. And we learn of the 24 elders and their continual declaration of the worthiness of the one on the throne, saying all things were created by him and through him and for him. The one on the throne is God Almighty. He's a spirit. But who we see in the midst of the throne is Jesus. In the first verse, a hand chapter 5, first verse, a hand comes out from the glory uh, that's over the throne, and uh, it holds a scroll, and it's written on the front and the back, and it has seven seals on it. And a strong angel, now that's kind of repetitive, um, (laughs) but a strong angel, I think it identifies him uniquely as separate to the others, also asks in a in his powerful way that all heaven and earth can hear, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? How worthy do you have to be? First, you have to be worthy enough to just approach the throne. (laughs) And thankfully, Jesus makes us all worthy of that because of what he's done for us. But this is more than that. This scroll brings the end of man's governments, the just wrath of God on those who resist his love and his grace and mercy, and the establishment of God's physical kingdom on the earth. How worthy do you have to be to do that? Until that is accomplished, sin is gonna continue to cause untold suffering age after age. Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Who can put an end to all the pain in this world that sin has caused? You know, when we just get a slight understanding of the enormity of suffering in this world, we weep with John. I just, I don't even want to look at those pictures from Southern Israel, the barbarity of what took place. How many people have lost the dearest to them in Ukraine, Russia, Israel, Gaza, Imagine the anguish of knowing your loved one was a hostage right now in Gaza. Or reclaiming the body of an unrecognizable relative who was massacred. And that's only a tiny, tiny fraction of the anguish and the suffering taking place in our world. Think of all the silent suffering from unfaithful spouses from relatives that won't speak to each other, from debilitating illnesses, abuse, human trafficking, and on and on. We live in a fallen world full of pain. When will it end? Atheists see the suffering and, and they use an argument against God. If there's a God of love, how could all this suffering happen? How strange, when in fact it's the absence of godliness that brings all this suffering. It can only end when God again regains the reign in our hearts and all sin is banished. And that's the purpose of the scrolls. Is there no one who's worthy to open that scroll? Is there no one in heaven or on earth who can vanquish sin? Does the suffering have to go on and on forever? It's no wonder John was weeping loudly. We should be weeping for the pain and the suffering that sin causes. To be worthy to open the scrolls, one would first need to be reconciled. To, to be able to reconcile all who come to God by faith and make a way for them to be eternally righteous. That one must be worthy to judge sin, and who could do such a thing but God alone? And so, hallelujah, the word became flesh in Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, the only begotten Son of God. He alone lived the perfect demands of the law and was worthy to be, present himself as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of all who would receive his gift. His perfect life and his sacrificial death and finishing the work of God gave him to do made him worthy to open the seals. He reconciled what was separated in the Garden of Eden. He paid the wages of sin himself. He alone can judge righteously. Opening the seals also means dealing with sin in the unrepentant by eternally separating them from the presence of God, which is the second death. What prompts a hallelujah shout to us brings screaming rage from those who have rejected the love of God. Verse five, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Amen. One of the elders told John that there was no need to continue weeping over the ongoing destruction of sin the Messiah has conquered. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah, the Root of David, those are messianic terms from the Old Testament, that are applied here to Jesus, of course. The one who was promised to reign forever. In Genesis 49.9 and Isaiah 11.10, the righteous eternal king had conquered. What did he conquer? Sin and death were defeated by his own death in our place. He'd conquered Satan and the entire demonic realm He had displayed the power of unending love. He'd shown the mercy prevails over judgment that we just read about in James chapter 2. Weep no more, fellow believers. Our God reigns. Hallelujah. He's merciful and he's just. The end of sin and suffering it causes is coming. Now for the surprising image that must have confused John for a moment. Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. That means that it uses numbers and imagery as, as symbols and signs. And so there's a, there's a lot of uh, pictures, and we can understand them by looking at other passages, other uh, apoc- pieces of apocalyptic literature throughout the Bible, and even some that were written in, in around the same time as John. So we see what they were using as imagery. We should picture this scene as best we can, though, in our mind's eye. The throne of God is the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. You remember in the temple, God had uh, Moses make this box. It was about, uh, I think it's two and a half cubits by one cubit. It's not real big. And it's made of acacia wood covered with gold, and the lid is... Uh, acacia wood covered with gold and the lid is called the mercy seat and on each side are are golden cherubim with wings that cover the ark And, and during the temple time under those wings was this ball of light called the shekinah the presence and so that is a picture Moses said of what is actually in heaven well John's up there looking at the real thing He's looking at the real mercy seat. The 24 elders surround the throne in worship, and around them fly the four living creatures singing the praises of God's holiness. And from among the elders steps forth this lamb, as it had been slain. In the first chapter we saw, in the first chapter of Revelation, you can read that he moves among the candlesticks That represents the church. He walks among the candlesticks. He's in the midst of the believers. Mentioning he's in their midst points back to chapter 2, verse 1, where he's in the midst of the lampstands. I believe these elders represent the Old and New Testament saints, the people of faith. He's with us to the end of the age. We had this beautiful moving painting. Uh, I don't know if you can move the screen back to the title page in the art show. And actually, Jory has a copy of this in his house. Um, It's of a lamb. It's this imagery. Somebody tried to represent this imagery. The painting is amazing. Um, I, I saw so many people just look at it and weep because it's a lamb and its throat is cut and the blood's running down and somebody's holding the lamb and around it are words like theft, murder, adultery and depression, anxiety and they were written by the people who had experienced those things and the imagery says it's all paid for This is the one that ends it all, this lamb. His sacrifice for us ends all that suffering. They were trying to to represent what we are reading here. The word for slain here is the same word used for sacrifice in the Greek version in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Hebrew. It was the gentlest way that a priest could end the life of the sacrificial animal. They used a very sharp piece of flint, and where the animal could barely feel it, and they would drain the blood out. The animal would just fade away. Around the lamb were those words that we all experience. Students of the Word should instantly think of numerous scriptures throughout the Bible, the Law, the Prophets, the Gospels, the Letters, as this scene is overflowing with theological significance. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist, John 129, in the Gospel of John. All the sacrificial lambs in Israelite history all look forward to this voluntary act of our Savior taking the justice that we deserve. Many churches today have set aside the need for atonement. <laughs> Actually, we had somebody here this morning <laughs> and, and call it an outdated barbaric thought. They ask, what kind of a God would kill his son for others? That's because they're ignoring the horror of sin, the greatness of God's love, and the fact that Jesus conquered death and hell in the process. They call good evil and evil good. No wonder they're horrified by the need for a sacrificial substitution. They've convinced themselves they've done no wrong. The word sin really has no meaning to them. Atheists argue that pain and suffering mean there can't be a loving God, and liberal Christians argue that pain and suffering are not the result of sin. And towering over all their denials is the cross of Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain to redeem us. He's the Passover Lamb that saves us from the second death, and all He asks of us is that we humbly repent and receive His gift of eternal life. Those seven eyes represent him able to see every soul. His spirit, the Holy Spirit, woos every heart on earth. In the past, now, and until that last day, his seven horns tell that he has all power to judge the world. And these seals he's about to open are filled with those judgments and the reward for the saints. His seven eyes represent the fact that nothing is hidden from him. Verse 7 and 8. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints there's a great sense of anticipation as all of history is about to culminate in the opening of these seals that are on the scroll that the Lamb has just received. The response of the elders and the living creatures is to fall on their faces before the Lamb. Finally, finally, there is a worthy one. How holy he must be. You know, the legend of King Arthur draws from this passage. Arthur was the only one that could pull the sword from the stone, meaning he was the one destined to save the kingdom and to reign. In a similar sense, the Lamb was the only one worthy to take that scroll from Almighty God. He's redeemed his bride. He's conquered death. He's fulfilled the will of the Father and made restoration with man. Evil will be vanquished forever. Justice will prevail on the earth and everyone who has cried out, why is there no justice? will finally see it meted out. And best of all, the King will reign in righteousness forever and ever. The elders have harps to accompany their praise, and the bowls are filled with the, pray, the prayers of God's people. The prayers are, are compared to incense, and that too is imagery right out of the tabernacle. You know, in the holy place, they would have the altar of incense representing the prayers of the people of Israel. And I love the fact again that the lamb is in their midst. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's in our midst even now while we are trying to grasp his greatness. Verse 9 and 10, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you, re- you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Can you see Jesus is the lamb that was sacrificed holding the scroll and those seven seals and the chorus of the living creatures and the 24 elders with their harps singing this song to the worthiness of the lamb. Remember that the voice of those cherubim alone could shake the foundation of the temple. I don't think these harps need amplifiers. (laughs) God made them instruments of praise and the voices of these elders are coming from their heavenly bodies, which are also made for praise. The reason they sing is because they know what it means for the lamb to receive the scroll. They know his sacrificial death ransomed people from every corner of the globe to be a kingdom of priests to reign on the earth. Those who will reign are a diverse and holy nation of priests whose sin debt was paid by the blood of the lamb henceforth all justice will be righteous no more corrupt politicians hallelujah all that god intended will be clear and undeniable and all doctrinal issues will be settled all false gods will be revealed as a lie and they these redeemed will reign with christ for a thousand years Worthy is the Lamb. The song comes out of hearts overwhelmed. Those 24 around the throne, the voices of these redeemed men and angels. The threshold is shaking as the song in perfect thundering harmonies reverberates throughout the heavenlies. But the chorus is just beginning to rise. Verse 11 and 12. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing seven words seven all throughout revelation is fullness He's completely worthy, he's totally worthy. Joining this majestic chorus is more than 10,000 of 10,000s, which is 100 million, but I think it's just saying, it's so big a number you can't count it. All these angels with their God-given vocals designed for praise, not holding back. Joining the seraphim and the 24 elders you know, if the angels wondered what God was up to up to this point, I mean, they had to. I mean, look, look at the world. I think when they saw the crucifixion, they were just going, what is going on? And then when they saw the resurrection, they probably thought, I kind of get it. And then when they saw the church, you know, with its ups and downs, they probably thought, is this really working? But now when he takes the scroll, woo! they say, it's working. It's working. He knows what he's doing. This is awesome. If they wondered, and they don't have any question now, it's become clear. And the glory of his nature is revealed in this lamb standing among the elders. And they say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The focus of heaven is Jesus. Heaven is fixated in awe of how worthy he is. He brings about the will of the Father with utter dedication and surrender to him. It's this surrender to the goodness and righteousness of God that makes him worthy to receive power, for he will only use power in a just and holy way. He's worthy to receive all wealth for his benevolence, is always distributed in righteous ways. He's worthy to receive all wisdom for he will only use that wisdom in accord with the goodness of God. And he's worthy of all honor for he is the only one who obeyed the Father in every detail and we're recipients of the fruit of that obedience. He's worthy of all glory for his life perfect, perfectly displayed the heart of God. And he's worthy of all blessing for the blessings he received, he redistributes with wisdom. Heaven is filled with resounding praise. It's a rising crescendo. And now all created things that have breath, all beings that have lungs that breathe air over their vocal cords are going to join that heavenly choir. Verse 13a. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You know, Narnia may not be such a stretch after all. As all heaven sings, the birds will sing. The whales are going to join in. Lions are going to roar. And we, human beings, will, all of us, join them all to praise God and the Lamb for their grace, mercy, and love and righteousness. It's a song that will fill the universe. God used the gentle Lamb, the Lamb of God, to slay a dragon. To redeem us from the powerful chains of sin. He's about to put an end to evil and renew the earth. It's the eternal thanksgiving. Goodness will reign. Truth will prevail. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And all the elders fell down and worshiped. Those magnificent living creatures thunder out a resounding, yes which is the same as saying, let it be so. Heaven's focus is Jesus, the worthy one. Weep no more, church. Suffering and sin will soon be over. All that is lost will be restored. Righteousness will reign. What else is there to do but join in worship with the elders and the seraphim and everything that has breath? Open the seals, Lord Jesus. Let sin be no more. Finish the work you started in us and bring us home. Would you lead us in praise and worship?